So if you've been here over the last six weeks, you've heard me talk about this kind of unique cultural moment that we're in, in which people are, uh, to some degree, more and more in our culture um, declaring themselves to have no religious affiliation, which is different than saying that you're a, an atheist, because that is a religious affiliation. It's to say that something has disturbed you, and more often than not, it has to do with Christianity, you're leaving the Christian faith, so something has disturbed you, and, and yet there are other things in other kind of belief systems that disturb you as well, so you've decided to just kind of be non-committal. I'm just, I have no affiliation whatsoever. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you're on your way there, right? Some of us aren't there, but maybe we're, we're on our way there. We're heading there. So what we've been doing this over the last, I, technically it's been six of these. This is the sixth one. We had a break last week for um, Andrew Martin, who did a great job, by the way. Um, and Andrew, if you're listening, which you, you probably not, but I'll just say thank you anyway for filling the pulpit. Um, but over the course of these last six weeks, we've been often talking about questions or misunderstandings of the Christian faith, and which means that we've been speaking about, to some degree, what we do understand about it. And today what I'd like to do is talk not so much about our understanding, what we think, but about our desire, what we want. And that's where our one verse for this morning will take us. So if you have your place in Romans 1 in your, in your Bible or in your bulletin, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. One verse this morning, Romans 1 verse 18. This is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, we acknowledge the fact that uh, we're coming into this room with a bunch of different emotions and, and thoughts, some of them attached to, to this place, to church, some of it just attached to life in general. There's lots of things that conspire to distract us from what you have to say, and so we just ask that you would pull those things away. Do those even from my own heart. Um, give us grace to see you, to hear from you, to receive you. We need you for this, and so we ask it in your name. Amen. Let's see. So how do you sum up a series like this? Uh, that's something that that I was thinking about a lot as I was thinking through this particular series, uh, which is to say I've been, that, that we, how do you kind of put a, not a bow, because this is about questions, this is about doubts, and you don't put a bow on doubts. <laughs> you don't kind of wrap up questions in a neat box and say here we've taken care of everything, and that's not what this series has been about. So in, in one sense, this is more of an apologetic series, which is to say we've been seeking to answer questions that have often come up, questions that have come up as I've talked to folks um, who, who have who've left the Christian faith, are considering leaving the faith, or have never been in the faith. But, but really, apologetics can really only get us but so far, can't they? You ever heard the phrase, or maybe you've said it, I refuse to believe, fill in the blank? I refuse to believe that da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's not an issue of 
information, is it? Refusing something isn't, I don't have enough information. It's a question of the will. Belief isn't just an intellectual exercise. It is something that has to be engaged with the will. And in that case, not believing is the same. Which is not to say there aren't grounds for unbelief. There aren't grounds for belief, right? It's not that we, we believe something, but we have no reason to believe something. It's just to say that those grounds have to be, we, we have to do something with them. Once we're given that, we have to do something with it. And that is not an issue of the intellect. It's an issue of the will. It's about what we want. So this morning, that's what we're gonna be looking at from Romans 1. If, you know, if you've got an outline and you wanna use it, great. If not, don't worry about it, okay? But let's, let's get into this, okay? As, as we engage in reasons of the mind, I wanna simply speak to the fact that all the topics we've talked about over the last six weeks are real objections. And what that means is they're not smoke screens. They're not like uh, silly ideas. They are all serious objections that if you haven't thought about them, hopefully you have at least heard them over the last six weeks in this. They are real, they are sincere questions. And if you have them, I want you to know this is a safe place to voice them and to bring them, okay? We aren't threatened by the reality of, the question, of your questions. So what were those? Well, the first of them was about uh, the question of, of God, right? We talked about the fact that many people leave faith because they've been disappointed in God and specifically in, in a God that they have uh, either been taught or assumed, but not a God that actually exists. Here's what I mean. If you believe that God is a dude who's supposed to keep you safe all the time, or a guy who, when you work really hard, is supposed to give you all the things that you, you actually want, or a God who uses guilt to bring you into line, that is not the God of the Bible. That is a God of our imaginations, okay? That is not a God that exists. The God of the Bible is a God who seeks to be reconciled to those who hate him, who rescues the weak and ungodly. And the, the challenge was of that week, if you're going to reject God, right, make sure you reject the right one. Make sure you reject the right one. If you're gonna reject him, at least make sure you're rejecting the right one. The second was the topic of the Bible, right? We, here we began to talk about the two general questions we have, the historical and the cultural. Maybe you remember that? And the historical question was, was raised around the idea that scientific knowledge and historic knowledge are two different things. Scientific knowledge is, the, is, is done by, by experimentation, repeating something that happened using controlled variables. But historical knowledge, which is what the Bible professes itself to be, comes in the form of testimony to something that actually happened. The fact that these things that happened, that, that, that they are incredible, right, doesn't necessarily rule them out unless our assumptions are already made up that those incredible things could not possibly happen. And that becomes unassailable in our minds. In other words, if we have closed minds to the possibility of anything ever happening outside of our own experience, then yes, that is sure. Then, then those things cannot possibly happen. And then we noted how Jesus helped us to interpret the Bible, the entire Bible based on him, that all the stories ultimately point to him and our need for what he came to do. 
right? And then the following week, we, we moved to the resurrection. That the resurrection of Jesus is, is the central event of Christianity and that, the, and that the New Testament especially approaches it not as fantasy, not as a fun story to inspire you, but as events that actually happen and then actually challenges the readers to fact check them. You remember that? Paul said, look, he appeared to 400 some odd, he appeared to me, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to these folks, then he appeared to 400 people in one place and many of them are still alive, so go ask them. Fact checking. He challenged us, go ahead. Which is way different, we said, than other religions because every other religion ultimately is about what the founder taught because what's important is following their teachings whereas Christianity is dogged about what our founder, Jesus, did because that's what makes us right with God. And then we looked at the, the issue of suffering and evil. And in the West, this is an issue because of our assumption. And it is a Western assumption that if God is all good and he is all powerful, then evil and suffering should not exist. In the sense it does, he must either be one or the other or neither at all, right? Remember that? A lot of that comes from the assumption that if you and I can't see how something makes sense, then it must not make sense, right? If, if we can't see how, how something would make sense, then it must not. And the assumption that an all-powerful being would keep himself from suffering and keep others from it. But what we saw is that the God of the Bible actually enters into our suffering and bears it in Jesus, and that he chooses to do so out of love. And then last time I was here, last time we... We, we had this time together, we talked about the, the accusation that all Christians are hypocrites. And I think that's the most famous of the reasons people giving, give for not wanting to consider Christianity. And it's famous because it's often true, right? But we noted that, it, that on the one hand, hypocrisy is not a Christian problem, it's a human problem. That it's not just an issue with Christians, it's an issue with everyone. And on the other, that Christianity is the only thing that can actually free us from this strange and universal drive that humans seem to have to present one front in front of others while at the other, on the other hand, hiding what is actually true of ourselves. And it does this by exposing those things we hide, calling them what they are, and then saying that in Jesus, God has loved us and provided for us in spite of them. And so these questions led ultimately to some disturbing conclusions. And there's a danger in saying this. The danger is simply that it can seem, when I say that there's disturbing conclusions, it can seem as if this entire series has been one big gotcha session, right? We love gotcha sessions in our culture. We love the gotcha moment. You kind of lure someone into a trap and then verbally like spring it on them and they're like, ah! and then they, they're stuck. I hate that. And I'm sure you do too, okay? What I mean by disturbing conclusions is simply that you and I often find little snippets that resonate with us and then we cling to them without a bunch of reflections. These objections that I've given over the span of these weeks are real objections, but those objections in fact say more than we might hope they do. For instance, saying that there are hypocrites in the church actually says nothing more than to say there are humans in the church. The gospel is the only thing that allows us to be authentic while also being confident in our acceptance, right? 
If you don't have that, what do you have? To deny God because of injustice actually undercuts the idea of justice because for something to be universally just, there needs to be a universal person that gives universal value to that thing. Because without that, all you have is my justice and your justice and I can't be outraged because your justice doesn't line up with mine. Unless I'm trying to, you know, impose my thoughts on you. To claim that the Bible is regressive because of some of the teachings in it is to claim that your culture is the culture by which all cultures of all time should be judged. And that anything other than us is, is regressive since we are progressive. See, the ironic thing being <laughs> that many, of, many folks who claim that the Bible is narrow-minded um, do so on the basis of a ex very extremely narrow definition of what would be broad-minded, right? Like what would be broad-minded has to do with sexuality. What would be broad-minded has to do with these four issues and not everything else. And that's what means to be broad-minded. It's a very narrow understanding. And, and to claim that you can't believe in a God who didn't keep you safe from suffering when the God presented in the Bible actually chose to enter into suffering and pain unjustly to rescue you, quite frankly claims that you know better than he does how his own power should be used. You see what I'm talking about? We tend to think, and, and many people do think, that there are things about Christianity that are disturbing, and there are. But the alternative isn't less disturbing. At times it's more disturbing. So if that's the case, why is it that we struggle to believe? Well, the Bible would argue, in fact, that it isn't so much a question of what information we have. It's ultimately a question of what it is that we want. So let's look at this, this one verse this morning, okay? This verse we're looking at this morning is actually a verse that, that came right before the passage that we started this entire series with. It's kind of appropriate to come back to. So let me set it up for you real quick. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, there's this guy, an early Christian leader by the name of Paul. He wrote this letter to the church in Rome uh, because he, he was rather famous or maybe infamous early on in his ministry in life, but then later famous because he was, he was someone who was, who was um, not originally Christian. Maybe you can relate to that. He was someone who was uh, violently opposed to Christianity, tried to, and actually got authority to hunt down Christians and either put them in jail or, or, or kill them. And while he was on the way to do that, in a city called Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus that completely flipped the script for him. And now he's writing this letter to the Roman church that he's never seen, never been to, because he intends to come to Rome and through them to go on to the west, uh, Spain in particular. And he wants them to support him. And so he's giving them some clarity on what it is that he preaches. And this verse, this verse, in fact, really is what begins his letter in earnest. Most of what came before his introduction and greetings and such. And, and he begins it with this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, there's a ton in this verse that can distract us if we let it. Um, for instance, it man mentions, right, the wrath of God 
And many of us struggle with that. Even if we're Christians, we struggle with this idea of a wrathful God. There are these trigger words for us in here, like ungodliness and unrighteousness. And some of us have been raised in traditions in which those are used as a club, right, to get you in the line, to make you do what's supposed to be done in their minds. These are all things that are important, but the key for what we are looking or talking about this morning is this notion of suppressing the truth, right? So look at that. Because the word that Paul uses there when he says that they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, the word suppress in the original, and the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, not English, um, not even the king's English, uh, but it was in the original, it, the, the word means, it means a violent restraint. It's not just kind of a, yeah, I refuse to think about. It's, it's a violent restraint or a taking by force. And so what Paul is saying is that humanity is active. We'll get to that in a second. In like intentionally and violently suppressing, restraining this idea of the truth. Now, some of us when we hear that are like, what are you talking about? I don't suppress the truth. Well, I'll get to that in a second. But what I wanna see here is that Christian, Christianity understands that every person, Every person in the world left to themselves actually is seeking not to understand, but to suppress what is true, to suppress it. And what I mean by what is true is what, he, what Paul here is talking about, the truth about God that's presented to them. And the why of that is found right there in that same verse. It comes from the heart. Look at the phrase that comes right before that word suppress. Paul says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, again, unrighteousness, ungodliness, churchy language. So let me explain. Basically what it means is that our active suppression of the truth about God comes from our hearts. Okay, let me get technical for a second. That phrase, by their unrighteousness, when it, when it uses that kind of, when Paul's using that grammar, I know we don't make grammar, it's ninth grade. Okay, we're back. Grammar, it means that it is either the unrighteousness is the destination from which the suppression springs or by which that suppression is accomplished, okay? That's the technical, but it means the same thing. Something drives our suppression of the truth. And listen to me, it is not information. It's not information. It's our brokenness. It's our unrighteousness. And that makes sense if you take it into the context of the entire Bible. Because the Bible, the story that the Bible tells is that because of sin, every one of us by nature is bent away from God that we actually want no part of him. We want to be independent of him, want to be autonomous from him. We want life apart from him. And that is important because it is not just what is, it is what we want. It is what we desire. We are stuck in this independence and part of that independence is our heart's desire to maintain that the illusion of independence is possible. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's convenient, right? You get to say that the reason rational people don't believe you is because their hearts keep you from believing. Yeah, 
I mean, that's true. That's basically it. But I'm not the only one who says it, okay? One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and some of you have heard me talk about this passage a ton, is, is in the book of Matthew, in chapter 18, right after the resurrection, well, right before the ascension, right? Right before Jesus ascends into heaven. It says that he and his disciples, they go up to the Mount of Olives, and they're all going up there, and it says, and they all worshiped him, but some doubted. What were they doubting? Listen, I had a roommate in college, um, after I became a Christian in college, my roommate who was a friend of mine from high school, he and I uh, talked about Jesus a lot because I was rude about it, frankly, um, and was trying to ram it down his throat. Uh, Young Christians can do that. Um, God has mercy on us. But um, he often would say to me, you know when I'll believe? I'll believe when I see him. There are people, his own disciples, These people who saw Jesus die are standing on the mountain with him in bodily form and some of them are doubting. That is not an issue of information. (laughs) They have all the information. That's not even an issue of is it really real. They can reach out and touch him and many of them have. Something else is going on here. So listen, if you're making up the Bible, why would you include that? Seems really silly, right? Why would you even include that? But second, like I said, what are they doubting? The information is right there in front of their faces. But this information, this belief, comes with a kind of vestedness, right? There's a contemporary atheist philosopher by the name of Thomas Nagel, and he said it this way. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. The famous atheist Aldous Huxley famously admitted that he didn't discover that the world was made without meaning. He decided it. He decided it. See, the Bible actually explains why those two statements are true, why they actually said said this. It's because we want our independence from God. So let me wrap up this series with some reasons to consider. These are both frankly, for Christians and non-Christians, because we all struggle here. So let me ask you something. What do you want? Like, what do, you, what do you really want? And that's an important question, because the Bible does teach us that at our base, we are creatures of desire. We always do what we want, or at least that we want more than the alternative. We always do what we want. So what is it that we want? This is why apologetic arguments can only do but so much. If the issue was purely intellectual, then unmasking assumptions and creating logical syllogisms would naturally lead to faith. But it doesn't. No matter what the dudes on YouTube tell you. It doesn't. So let me ask you, what is it that you desire? What do you want? Let me give you some thoughts and maybe they'll resonate. 
My guess is that many of us actually want the kind of God that, that kind of relates to those images we talked about in the first week. Superman God, Coke machine God. We want those images because we tend to feel vulnerable in a world that's out of control and we wanna have some measure of control. If God can be bargained with, then we're in control. Some of us probably want the Bible to be up for grabs because it exposes things about us that are really uncomfortable. And frankly, it's always easier to discredit the source than to engage in a criticism, right? We do that today with everyone. Well, of course so-and-so said this, it's because of their issues, right? Not actually engage in the criticism itself. My guess is that we question the resurrection, not because it's so amazing that a dead dude would get up. Because let's be honest, there are whole crowds of people that believe in Bigfoot. This is not that crazy to think about. A lot of you believe in Bigfoot, don't you? That's why that went over so flat. Okay. Whew. All right. Um, Okay, all right, that's good. But listen, uh, we question the resurrection not because it is so amazing, but because we know that if Jesus did rise again, then you and I can't live in rebellion to him anymore. We can't. And my guess is we deny God because of pain because it's easier to deny him than trusting that his heart is good towards us even if we can't wrap our minds around it in the moment. And my guess is we struggle with hypocrisy because we don't believe that we can be both fully known and fully loved. Can I be known fully and loved completely? I don't think so. So you know what I'm gonna do? Be a hypocrite. And then I'm gonna get mad when I see other hypocrites. These aren't little wants. These aren't little desires. They're deep desires that go to the core of who you are, who I am. They come out differently, sure, but they are longings that drive us. And we don't believe, not just intellectually, not just intellectually, listen. Some of us have been doing this long enough, we know that the distance between here and here is a heck of a lot more than 12 inches. The distance between what I know to be true up here and how I live my life, but what I prove that I actually believe is true, that's, that can be really far apart. And you always know that distance because you, you say stuff like, I know I should, but, but. That's a, that's a distance. So the issue is not just that we don't believe in it intellectually, but we don't believe at a heart level that Jesus is actually enough to answer those longings. And if he's not enough, then I will go somewhere else. And that is what drives all of our unbelief, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian. All of our unbelief is driven by that. Wait, wait, Christians have an unbelief? Yes! Why do you think you sin? Listen, all of us, I just got done talking about this in our engaged class. All of us, are, the behaviors we have are driven by our unbelief that Jesus is enough for us in some way, shape, or form. If he's not enough for me, then I have to go somewhere else to find it. 
And it leads to this behavior that's either self-destructive or other destructive or just wrong. That is why we do what we do. And it gets to the heart. But listen, let me speak to where I believe these things can be fulfilled. I've said this a bunch of times, and it's not me who came up with it. C.S. Lewis, so, you know, I can't claim that. But even if you don't believe that Christianity is true and that the God of the Bible exists and that Jesus is who he says he is, you should really, really want to. And here's why. See, the gospel actually speaks to all of these longings that I mentioned. The gospel does tell us that God did create us, that the world has meaning and so do we. It tells us that we have a broken relationship with God and that because of that broken relationship, we are broken ourselves and we are accountable to him, which means that the shame that we often feel is real. It's not some kind of cultural imposition. It's real. I feel this. You know why? Because I've done something wrong or there is something in me that is broken. Yes. But it also tells us that his love for us is greater than our shame. That he came in the person of Jesus to rescue us and to right the world. That he knows us completely and in Jesus has loved us fully. And it tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is a deposit, a down payment on him righting the world in which all the pain and suffering that we know now will be made right. See, we're conflicted creatures. Those of us who don't believe in God often live as if he exists and those of us who follow Jesus often live as if we don't. The gospel provides not just an explanation for this, why that happens, but a hope for it. See, a lot of people that I've shared the gospel with end up saying to me, it seems too good to be true. But I think what we really mean when we say that, what we really mean is that it speaks too deeply to what I desire for me to dare to hope. Because what if I'm disappointed? I've spent these last six sermons hopefully showing that faith is not blind. Faith is not blind. There are firm grounds for what Christians believe, for what we believe, what I'd love for you to believe. But in the end, you have to be willing, like in any relationship, to risk that the person is actually true to what they say. Some of you know this because I've told you this all the time. There is no such thing as a relationship without risk. That's true with God too. To lay your life in the hands of another, to lay your hopes in the hands of another, to give up your independence is terrifying. Enough information will not make it less so. More information will not make it less so. Well, if he proves it to me enough, How's that going in your relationships right now? How much do they have to prove it to you? So whether you're a Christian struggling to believe God can actually satisfy you or you're a someone with no religious affiliation who has given up on God completely, I would ask you this, will you reconsider? 
I can tell you boldly that I truly believe that Jesus and his gospel is the only thing that can give you and I what we really want. It asks for all you are. It does. It asks for all you are, but it gives you everything you dared hope. And I think, and I hope you think now, that that's worth reconsidering. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we close this time, we simply just ask for you by your grace to work in our wills. It's not that our wills are independent and everything else is dependent on you. Even our wills have to be dependent on you. And so we ask that for those of us who are just struggling to believe that you are enough for us and so keep running to broken cisterns that can't hold water, I pray that you would give us the desire to desire to change. Change our wills even so that we would want you. And for those of us who are struggling even just to believe any of it, I just ask that you would enliven our hearts and our wills. And we can't force ourselves there. We, re- we re- rely completely on you. And that's why we pray it in your name. Amen.